Thank you for listening to sermons by Chaplain Braswell. This ministry desires to help people know and live for Christ through the preaching of God's Word. And now, today's message. Well, it is good to see you again today. My name is Chaplain Dan Braswell. I'm one of the chaplains here on the team at Schofield Community Chapel. I serve at Headquarters and Headquarters Battalion, 25th ID as the chaplain. It is good to see you today. We're continuing our psalm series entitled Songs That We Still Need to Sing. That is, uh, these ancient psalms, which essentially was the, was the songbook for, for the Israelites uh, during the time of the Old Testament. The truths that are contained in these passages of Scripture in these psalms are still true for you and for me uh, today. So in just a minute, we're going to turn to Psalm chapter 51. Before we do that, I need to show you a passage of Scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So we'll be in Psalm 51 in just a minute. Before we do that, go ahead and turn your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and that's where we'll start this morning. Before I do that, let me share one more uh, opportunity of ministry with you, and it is a celebration, but also something for you to consider uh, praying about. Many of you know who's been with us for a while. For over a year now, Schofield Community Chapel has, has funded and sent volunteers to support the Wednesday cookout that happens at the reception company barracks when soldiers, uh, single soldiers, E5 and below, in process, they stay in those barracks for two weeks as, they, as they're in processing on Wednesday afternoon, they meet our team and, and we, we feed them a meal. It's a great blessing. It's been going on for a year. Well, we're going to say farewell to the Chessers who are sitting right over here in a, in, a, in a couple of three weeks now. But for the past year, they have faithfully prepared hamburgers and, and cooked burgers and cooked hot dogs for about a year now. If we were writing, like, if we were writing it up, it'd be like 10,000 hamburgers, 10,000 hot dogs, all that kind of stuff, because they just faithfully week in and week out have come. And that's, we're going to say more about that in a couple of weeks. But the Army uh, is, is moving them. He, he's, they're going to move back to the mainland in just, a, in just a few weeks. The reason I say that is there's an opportunity there for any, any, any family member, or a soldier who wants to be involved in our ministry, there's definitely opportunities to come to help prepare the food and to help cook. So if that's something that you're interested in being a part of, for those for soldiers, if, if that's something you're interested in and you want me to help you uh, to, to maybe, to maybe help, help your leadership understand that's volunteer hours and those kind of things, I can certainly uh, help do that as well. Today, we're going to look at this subject, how to be right with God. How to be right with God. As I was looking at the congregation, uh, just kind of I watch every week as people come and people go. Every week's a different, a different group. Uh, that's true in a civilian church. Uh, I think even more so in our, in our context, like Chaplain Clark, he, he told you, right? He hasn't even been back from the field 24 hours yet, and, and he's here. So a couple, three Sundays he's missed, and a lot of y'all were very similar in doing things like Bronco Rumble, things like our Pathways missions, and then you, and then you come back, and then what's going to happen in the next several weeks is we'll have JPMRC, and a lot of you, uh, maybe family members, maybe you'll be attending and, and plugging in, but the rest, rest of you will be doing all kinds of awesome Army training, and, and God bless you, and we always pray for each other and pray for safety. Uh, some of you in this room I saw in Indonesia, now I see you here back at chapel. There's all, there's all kinds of things coming and going. One of, the, one of the things I want to point out is that 
every opportunity that we have to gather together to hear the Word of God, it's very easy sometimes to hear a word and then to think in, in our minds, boy, I really wish so-and-so was here so that they could have heard that message. You ever catch yourself doing that? I know I do, especially if it's something that particularly is hard to me. I say, well, I wish um, maybe today Cheryl comes back tomorrow. I can say, well, I wish Cheryl was here to hear that message. Well, what I encourage you to do today, don't do that. Don't look around and don't say, as we talk about, we're going to talk about the hard topic of repentance. We're going to talk about confession, what it is to be right with God. This is a hard message. You, you, there, there's a lot of emotion. There's, there's, a, there, there's, a, there's a lot of heartache in this story that we're going to hear. The reality is there's a lot of emotion and there's a lot of heartache in our lives at times too. I say that to say don't let this morning pass by and think, oh, I wish somebody else was here to hear this. In fact, what I'd like for you to do right now is I'd like for you to look at somebody and say this statement, God has something for me today. Look at somebody and say that. God has something for me today. I believe that he does because God's, God always speaks through his word. What, what I hope and pray that, that you and I do is we, we, we grasp hold of this precious opportunity we have to hear what, what uh, God inspired David to write about repentance and about confession and about, about how, to be, how to be right with God. Psalm 51 is one, is one of the most powerful, in my opinion, psalms. They're, they're all powerful, obviously, in, in different ways. But it's one of those that's been often quoted, often used, quoted in the New Testament. Uh, many people, uh, William Carey, the famous missionary, at his funeral, he wanted Psalm 51 read, for example. Also one of the most convicting. In fact, it's so convicting that there's been times when even atheists or, or someone who's antagonistic toward religion or antagonistic towards the biblical teaching of God, they'll, they'll want to poke holes at it. The famous French philosopher Voltaire, he sat one day to rewrite Psalm 51. Voltaire decided that he was going to make a satire and he was going to rewrite Psalm 51 where it talks about God having mercy and it talks about the sin and he was going to use it to to be satirical, to, to make fun of, to belittle the Christian faith. And all was going well, as Voltaire wrote. But the story goes, in verse number 10 of Psalm 51, when he makes the statement, when David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Voltaire, although one of the largest opponents of Christianity in his day, as he attempted to translate this to a poem, when he tried to make fun of that, created me a clean heart, all of a sudden, this realization of the terror of hell came upon Voltaire. He tried to shake the feeling, but he found himself unable to write. And later he confided to his friends, Voltaire did now, that he could not think of that experience without an innate fear that haunted him. The phrase created me a clean heart implies that I have a dirty heart. Repentance is in the center of the message of Psalm chapter 51. And we're going to see that in, in, in just a minute. Repentance is at the center of the New Testament message. John the Baptist, when he called out, when he cried out in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist talked about repentance. Jesus himself talked about repentance. When you read through the book of Acts, what you're going to see time and time again 
even in Acts, in, in the first chapters of Acts, when the people asked as Peter was preaching at Pentecost, what must we do? What did he say? He said to repent. And time and time again through the book of Acts, Peter will use the word repent and he will use the word faith. He almost uses them interchangeably. As, as one person has said, repentance and faith are like two sides of the same coin. We're turning from sin and we're turning to Christ. And there's a story behind Psalm 51. We're going to read it in just a minute. When you hear the language and you hear the emotion and, and the seriousness that David takes in, there's a story behind it. And it is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to, we're going to read in the, in, the, in the prologue of Psalm 51 that David tells us this is the psalm that he wrote following his, his sinful uh, endeavors with, 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 his, with his story of David and Bathsheba. I want to point them out to you, and you follow along with me in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I want you to see what David did, what the results were, because this is what's going to set up our clear understanding of what this whole idea of Psalm 51 is in terms of how to be right with God. So look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, and look at verse number 1, and look what it says. We're, we're going to walk through this story together. It says, In the springtime of the year, the time when kings go out the battle. In other words, David's place of duty, so to speak, would have been out with his troops in battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. We all know good leaders are where. Good leaders are where they need to be. A lot, this is a room full of leaders. We're making decisions all the time. It's where's the right place to be. The author of 2 Samuel is saying that David was not at the right place. He chose to abdicate his duties as king. He chose to, to spurn his duties as being a leader during a time of war. And he stayed at the house. In your life and in mine, if you think about the times that you've failed and you've sinned against God, has there been some of those times when you failed and when you sinned that you, had you been doing what the thing was that you're supposed to be doing, you wouldn't have fell into the sin anyway? Think about the epidemic in our country and in our world of pornography. Think about the epidemic of, of, of isolation. What happens in isolation? We do things, we fall into sin. Why? because we're not doing those other things that we're called to do. David was not where he needed to be, and that's what led to this to begin with. Look at verse number 2 in 2 Samuel 11. It says, It happened late one afternoon. David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David entertains lustful thoughts. David entertains lustful thoughts. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But then Jesus adds, I say to you, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. You might remember in Job 31, Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. But David, that's what led him down this path. He looked. He looked lustfully. Verses 3 and 4, look at it. David sent and inquired about the woman, and, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers, he took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. David committed adultery. David sent for her and committed this sinful act. In verses 7 through 13, we won't read it all, but David attempts to cover up 
his sin. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. Bathsheba gets pregnant. David comes up with a plan to bring Uriah. Remember, Uriah is, is Bathsheba's husband. He's out in the fighting. He's out, he's out on, the, on the battlefield. David calls for him, and he brings him back. And David's ultimate plan was Uriah will go home, be with his wife, and then that will cover up his sin. But Uriah was this, I don't, I don't know, I didn't know, we don't know a lot about Uriah, but I like Uriah. You know what I'm saying? He, he, to, make it even, to make it even harder, he's a noble guy. He's a soldier. You want this guy as your, as, as, on your team. You want this guy as an NCO. You want this guy as someone leading troops. He's so noble. He says, no, I can't go home and be with my wife. Because my, my, my men are out here fighting a battle. I'm not, I'm not going to have the luxury of going home and being with my family while my, while my men are still in the suck, so to speak. And he does this twice. David tries to get him to go home twice. Well, it doesn't happen because Uriah is a, a noble man and he, he just won't do it because of his love for his men. And Then David in verses 14 and 15 of 2 Samuel 11, look at, look at what he does. This is where he commits murder. Uh, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, watch this, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And then the rest of the story, that takes place. Uriah does die. And then after that, the rest of the story is uh, David takes Bathsheba as his wife. The child uh, dies Days after childbirth, and that is where David, that's part of where the story ends. David lusts, he sins, he commits adultery, he commits murder, he tries to cover it up. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And you can read it for yourself, but I'll, I'll tell you the story. Nathan is a prophet of God, and he tells David this story, and, and Nathan tells him, there's two men in a town. He says one's very rich and one's very poor. The poor man had nothing. The rich man had all these cattle. He had all these sheep. But the poor man over here, he had nothing except the Bible says in verse 3, one little ewe lamb. He had one little lamb. He raised that lamb, the Bible says, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food and it even slept with him. And in Nathan's story, he says a traveler comes to the rich man and the rich man, it's, it's his responsibility to feed the traveler. But instead of taking one of his own sheep or, or cows, he takes the poor man's ewe lamb. And David responds exactly like Nathan intended him to. What does David do? Look at verse number 5 of 2 Samuel 12. He, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then verse number 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. And it's not you are the man like you might say, you're the man like in a good way. This is you are the man in a bad way. You are that horrible rich person. You are, are that despicable character in the story I just told. And that is what sets up Psalm chapter 51. As David is confronted with his sin, we turn to his response that I am so thankful God in his infinite wisdom left for us because I believe there's a pattern 
in Psalm 51 that applies to every one of us today on how to be right with God. Every one of us in this room have, have been to this point in our life in one shape, form, or fashion. The, the Bible says that to have, to, to, have, to have salvation, one must turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I would also submit to you that in our Christian walk, there's going to be those times when even as God's children, we fail, and we're going to have to come back to this time and time again of, of how to be right with God, how to, how to go through the process of confession and receiving forgiveness and, and then having that restoration. With that said, let's look together at Psalm chapter 51, and I want you to follow along with me in Psalm 51. Again, the, the, the prelude there says, For the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So here's David's response to his sin. Verse number one. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. By the way, as you're reading, notice there's three words David uses, transgression, iniquity, sin. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. Uh, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion. In your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. How to be right with God, this, this, this picture of repentance. I want to look at it through three phases. And the first is this. Point number one is simply confession. We, got, we received the backstory of David's sin. Now we see his confession. We just read verses 1 and 2. He's asking God for mercy. And I pointed out that he uses three words. So let me share, share them with you. The first I want to point out is, is the word transgressions. In my Bible, I underline these words. But in verse 3, it says, I know my transgressions and my, and my sin is before me. The word transgressions uh, pops up throughout. Throughout, he, la he later on says he'll teach transgressors your ways. This idea of transgression is a, is a rebellious action that is intentional and, and that is and that is willful. The plural is significant. 
Notice it in the English translation, it's transgressions, plural. Uh, David, in his sin, willingly rebelled against the commandments of God. If you think through the Ten Commandments, David willfully transgressed more than one of them. The Bible says in Exodus 20, you shall not murder, but he took the life of Uriah. One of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 is you shall not commit adultery, yet he committed adultery. You shall not steal, yet he stole, stole a man's wife. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. One of the Ten Commandments, he lied to try to cover up his sin. You shall not covet, in Exodus 20, 17, your neighbor's wife. He, he transgressed willful rebellion and willful disobedience. And he's acknowledging that. He is confessing that to God. When we willfully transgress God's law, the only proper response is to acknowledge it before the Lord. The second term he uses in this idea of confession, confession is, this, is this idea of iniquity. Look at it. It's in verse 2 in Psalm 51. He says, wash me from my iniquity. You see that? Look down at verse 5. I was brought forth in iniquity. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Verse number 9, he says, blot out my iniquities. The, the word there for iniquities is, is like a bend or a, or a twist. It, it means to pervert something or, or to go astray or to depart from the right path. I can't help but think of when sin entered our world in the, in the garden. What, what did the serpent say? Did God really say dot, 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 dot? When we think about our own sin, and I, and I hope and I pray that as, as we're hearing God's word today, I, I can't help but think and, and just have faith and confidence that the Holy Spirit's working in our hearts and, and, and leading us to confession. When we think about our own sin, when, when, when you and I sin, we're essentially saying we know better. We know better than God. There's something out there that I need to do that is willfully against God, but I'm going to twist it. And over here, I'm essentially saying, did God really say that's the idea of iniquity. You've got the transgression, willful. You've got the iniquity, the twisting. And then you got the word, you have the word sin. And it shows up several times throughout, throughout this passage. He uses it in verse 2 to cleanse me from my sin. He says in verse 3, my sin is ever before me. He, he says against God alone has he sinned. And he says it several other times. You've heard before the idea of sin in the New Testament many times is, is, is depicted as to miss the mark, the goal, or to, or to miss the right way. He, he, he missed the mark. He, he, he sinned willfully. Rather than being a king who is about saving lives and taking care of people, he took life. Rather than telling the truth, he lied. He has wealth and abundance, but then he even takes from others. In any direction you look, David saw his sin. He said, my sin is always before me. And, and let me point this out, especially in, in the context of the world that we live in. The sin is, the, 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 the point of being right with God is not some sort of self-help thing. Why are you saying that, Chaplain? Let me, let me share with you what I mean. If we don't look honestly at Psalm 51, many times our modern day thought about how to be right with God is something like this. Is your life good or is your life bad or could your life be better? And you might say, well, my life, 
could be better. Well, if you'll trust God and you'll turn to God, he'll, he'll make your life better and you won't have so many bad things and you'll have a lot more good things. Does that sound like a, kind of a way of thinking that's around us sometimes? Yes. And I believe Satan himself is super glad because what Satan doesn't want is he don't want people confessing and repenting of their sins. This passage, according to David, when he uses this language as against you and you alone have a sin, it's not so much a self-help for David. It's I need a savior. I have transgressed. I am the guilty one. And oh God, I'm crying out for your mercy, which is a far cry from I'm just going to have a better life because of God's in my life. God will give us a better life, but our ultimate need is a savior. Our ultimate need is to confess and, and, to, and to say against you and you alone, have I sinned? Which, by the way, means that in David's life, did he sin against some other individuals? He certainly did. You, you can name people in the story that, that David wronged. He wronged his own soldiers. He wronged Bathsheba. He wronged Uriah. He wronged his men. You could go on and on, and you see the ramifications of his sin in the rest of the story. You and I could say the same thing. When we sin against our wife or our husband, we, we've wronged them. When we mistreat someone, we've wronged them. That's true. When we sin, it impacts other people. But what David is making the point of is all those things ultimately point to the fact that we have ultimately sinned against God himself. In Genesis chapter 39, don't turn there, but I want to point it out. When, when Joseph was working in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife tempted him to have sex with her, and Joseph made this statement. He said, he said, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Because he had a clear understanding that everything in our life, if we miss the mark, if we transgress, and if we twist what God has for us, we are, we are then by definition in sin, and that is a sin, yes, against other people, but it's also a sin against God. So what does David do? Well, we're talking about confession. He confesses. Look at verse number one. What does he say? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. He says, he asked God to do what in verse one? To blot out my transgressions. This idea of blot out, to remove or to, or to wipe clean my slate. Sin here is seen as an insurmountable debt that cannot be paid. It can only be forgiven. And the only way we can be forgiven is through trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus did pay that debt for us as we read through the rest of Scripture. He asked him to blot it out. Look at verse 2. He uses the language of wash me thoroughly. Sin is a stain that needs to be laundered. It's a, it's a defilement of dirt that, that needs to be removed by a washing. And David pleads for the Lord to wash him completely. Your uniform after a hard Bronco rumble or a, or a JPMRC rotation where you wear the same uniform for a few weeks. I, I think I told this story one time before, but up at, up at Fort Drum, there was one particular training like that where I went to the house and went to the garage and Cheryl said, take all those clothes off right there. Don't bring all that mess into the house. And I'm like, good night. We live at Fort Drum, and it's like December. It's cold. She's like, I don't care. I'm not bringing all that into the house. Why? Because, because that stuff was dirty. It needed to be cleaned. That's the language that David is using here. David's saying the sin has made me dirty. Are, are you dirty? Do you need to be cleaned this morning? This passage teaches us the wonderful truth that we can cry out to God in confession and ask for mercy, and he will forgive us. Wash me. 
And then he uses the language of cleanse me. He says, cleanse me from my sin in verse number two. In, in verse 10, he says, created me what? Created me a clean heart. It's, it's a temple term uh, used for religious or, or ritual cleaning. Some of the language there is used for uh, language about cleansing a leper because sin is depicted here as an infectious disease that spreads and it kills if it's not cured. This is where David stood before the Lord. He's confessing. By the way, before we move on from confession, I want to point this out. When you think about the story we read in 2 Samuel, there's going to come times when you and I need somebody to help us maybe to get to that point of confession. Sometimes God will bring circumstances in your life. Sometimes God will bring people in your life. In David's case, that person was Nathan. Thank God that Nathan was a man of God who loved David enough to tell him the truth. It's almost scary to say this out loud, but I hope you can agree with me and pray that if we're in sin, that God will love us enough and somebody will love us enough to help us get right with God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way, the more isolated a person is, do we live in a world where isolation is a challenge for many people? I think so. Bonhoeffer said, the more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, and the more deeply he becomes involved in it, and the more disastrous his isolation. It's a vicious cycle of sin and isolation. It just goes on and on and on. The poet John Donne, he said this. He said that sin is a serpent. It's like a snake. And he that covers sin does but keep it warm. Did you catch that? Keeps it warm. That it may sting the more fiercely and disguise the venom and the vulgarity more effectually. The more it stays covered, the more it stays in the dark, the more warm and the more comfortable it becomes. We must confess our sins. What do you need to confess today? What do you need to confess today? The good news about confession is that after that comes forgiveness. Point number two is forgiveness. Look at verse 7 in Psalm 51 in this idea of forgiveness. He says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. He, he, he's, he's talking about being cleansed. We're going to see the forgiveness of God here. Notice initially he appeals to the mercy of God. In, in Psalm 51.1 he says, Have mercy on me, O God. Many times when someone else has wronged us, we want them to get it. <laughs> Many times when somebody has wronged us, we want justice. But in this case, David's saying, oh, I don't want justice because I understand in, in, in my own life that if I have to stand before God and he gives me justice, the wages of sin, the New Testament says, is death. He understands that he needs this forgiveness. Look at, verse, look at verse 5 again. I said we would talk about this. In verse 5 it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David here is not saying in any way that, that, that his mother somehow sinned as, 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 as David was born through, through the intimacy with, his, with David's dad or anything like that. That's not his point. His point is he was born in iniquity in the sense of this. You and I, we 
are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. The Bible teaches some theologians call original sin. The idea is that every single person is born into sin and that that person will, will not have to be taught how to sin. You say, chaplain, how do you know that? Did any of y'all have to teach your children not to share toys? Did anybody, did you, did you have a lesson when they became two-year-old and say, here, Johnny, let me teach you how to pitch a fit now that you're two years old because that's what two-year-olds do? Or did they just kind of figure that out on their own? Did, when you tell them not to do something and you turn your back and they intentionally do it, did you teach them how to be bad or did they just do it? Original sin in action. It's not going anywhere anytime soon until Jesus comes back. No, what do you have to teach your children? To be good, <laughs> to, to do right. No, that is wrong. You will have consequences for this. He, he's simply saying that it is, it, is, it, is, it is the entire human race has the same problem. We are all born into, into this sin and we desperately need forgiveness. And another psalm, we won't go there, but in Psalm 103, the psalmist says, O oh Lord, if you should mark our iniquities, who could stand? Implication being, no one. No one could. There's, there's no business of, well, I'm going to compare my sin to somebody else, and, and, if, my, um, and if my sin's uh, less sin than their sin, I'm going to be okay. No. Who could stand? No one could stand. This idea of repentance the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a, just a series of doctrinal statements, it says repentance is a saving grace whereby a sinner, uh, out, of, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn to God with the purpose and endeavor after new obedience. We need forgiveness. The words that he uses about what God does for us are awesome in verse 1. He says, he says, compassion, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. The, the words there for compassion and love, interestingly, it, it carries the same root as the word in the Hebrew used for a womb. It, it's the idea that like a mother loves their children. Moms love their children, amen? Y'all love your children, all, all the moms here. We see that, and, and the idea is like that's the kind of love that God that God has for us. He He has a compassion. It's 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 a good thing because our sin is so great, but God's love is greater. He has this compassion for us, and that's why we receive this forgiveness. Verse seven, we already read: "Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean." the The root word of the of purge is the is the same root word that's for sin in the Old Testament. David is essentially when he says, purge me with hyssop, he's asking God to unsin him or to de-sin him. Hyssop was a small brush used as a, as a plant to sprinkle blood in rituals of purification in the temple. Lepers would come before the priest and, and be sprinkled with hyssop and be ceremonially sprinkled clean. The idea is that we receive forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. What did we sing earlier? Christ is a firm foundation. He won't fail. He what? He won't. That's the implication there because he forgives us. And when we receive that forgiveness, point number three is this. We receive restoration. We receive restoration. We're whiter than snow. Wash me, he says, and I will be whiter than snow. 
And that's the good news. The challenge for you and the challenge for me is getting there. Because many times we want to hold on to that sin. Restoration may be difficult. You may be struggling and I may be struggling with it right now. In repentance, God doesn't abandon. He heals. He restores. But it's not necessarily easy. I'll share this story. And C.S. Lewis is one of his books. He wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, all the Chronicles of Narnia. In the book The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which they also made a movie out of it as well, there's a boy in the, in the story. He's, he's, he's very selfish. He's a selfish character. His name is Eustace. And Eustace loved all his stuff. He loved his treasures more than anything else. And one night he fell asleep with his precious gold bracelet on his arm. While he was asleep, he transforms into a dragon. And he be essentially becoming an outward manifestation of what he is inside, selfish. But then Aslan, the great lion, comes along. And Aslan offers to help Eustace remove his dragonness by removing the skin. And Eustace tries himself, but he can't do it. Aslan offers to help. Listen to how Lewis wrote the story. I'm going to read you a piece of the story here. At, talking about Aslan. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as soft and smooth as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. And then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I, I found out that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. Watch this. I turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me, and he dressed me in new clothes. The Bible says in the New Testament, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. To repent, to confess of our sin, is to, is to be just like that hyssop to be descend. To confess our sins is to be de-dragon. In repentance, we're not asking God to do anything that is not in keeping with his character. Aslan wasn't unwilling to clean. God isn't unwilling to forgive. It was Eustace who wanted to do things on our own. I submit to you today when we're not clean, it's because we want to hold on to our sin. But in repentance, we're asking God to be all the things he's promised to be. The heart cleanser, the spirit renewer, the Holy Spirit giver, the joy restorer, the life upholder, the sin remover. As soon as we admit to ourselves who we are and what we've done in light of who God is, God will be there and God will change us. And when he does that, I want to show you in closing three things that I think this passage teaches us that he does under the idea of restoration. They're not in your outline, but you can jot them down. Restoration does, I think, three things. Verse 13, restoration will lead you to teach others. What does it say in verse 13? Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn to you. When you and I are right with God, we'll be able to point others to the Lord as well. Does that make sense? He, he found this forgiveness and part of his restoration is he's able to reach out uh, to others. Restoration number two will also 
lead you to worship. It'll also to lead you to worship. Look at verses 14 and 15. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. Watch this. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 15. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Forgiven people make great singers. That's why I love in chapel when we're singing out to the Lord. I love to just, sometimes we just, we just the band stops and I hear y'all singing because that's, that's what that's about. As we understand God's forgiveness, we sing out to God in praise. And then number three, restoration will change you and will have the potential to change your community. Verses 18 and 19 say, Do good in Zion in your good pleasure and build up the walls of Jerusalem. When you and I confess our sin to the Lord and we're right with God and God restores us, He invites us to join Him in what He's doing in the world around us. What would Schofield community look like if you and I were right with God and then we were worshiping and serving Him? It would make a difference in our community. If a man in this room says, I'm going to be right with God, it'll impact your family. If a child in this room says, I'm going to be right in God, it'll impact those around you. If, if, a, if a single soldier in this room says, I'm going to be right with God, you have the opportunity to make a difference in the lives of those around you. If a mom in this room says, I'm going to confess my sins and be right with God, it'll impact your family. It'll impact those around you. And I said at the beginning to say out loud, God has something today for me. Because I know that all of us, at some point in our lives, have to come to face with this. We need to be descend. We need to be de-dragoned. This is something that we will continue to, to do daily, to do on a regular basis. There's still ministry in our mistakes. There's still potential after the pitfall. There's still future after our moral failures. I invite the band to come up and we're going to pray together and we're going to give you an opportunity just to pray to the Lord. We're going to sing about the goodness of God, a song that, that I think our congregation has just grown to love as, as hearing you guys sing. And I invite you to stand and I want to pray for you. And we're going to sing together. And if you want to take a moment to pray to the Lord, you, you may have heard God's word today and, and, and there's that sin in your life. There's that piece of the dragon that you need to get de-dragon. There's that, there's that part of you that needs purging. I invite you just to talk to the Lord about that. If that's something you want to do at your seat there, you're welcome to. If you want to come up here and pray, you certainly can. If you want to pray with one of us as, as one of our chapels, chaplains who are here, we're welcome. you're welcome uh, to do that. But I invite you to pray with me right now and just take a moment as we get ready here uh, to, to leave for the day to, uh, to take some time to pray to the Lord. Heavenly Father, all our lives you have been faithful and you are so, so good as we're about to sing. God, purge us, create in us a clean heart. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and renew a spirit within us. God, let us never think that this is something that we do one time and then we've got it all figured out because we know that we don't. Heavenly Father, I pray that as you've pricked our hearts today, help us to respond to you in confession. If we confess our sins, God, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God, we thank you that you hear us. I pray that you'd speak to your people today, that we will take in what you've said to us, and God, that we would obey you. And God, we pray all this 
In Jesus' name, amen.